We're jumping into the book of John. Father, we, we commit this morning to you, um, as we do regularly, but just to ask that, that this particular morning would, would speak a particular message to particular people that just need to hear it. Father, if, if we're in our faith walk and we're at that stage where we need to, to learn again some of these doctrines of the faith, just, I just pray that we would have the ears to hear it that we'd benefit from it, but, but also just that our relationship with you would grow uh, as a result. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you know me, uh, if you know me, my personality, I'm, a, I'm crazy big picture. Crazy big picture. Everything for me starts with the context why I love history. And, and it's, it's getting your arms wrapped around everything. And then once you have all the relevant data, then you can kind of look at a particular thing and derive kind of meaning from that. And, and this morning, it's kind of backwards for me. It's, it's a doctrine in Scripture that I think isn't one that we come out with or we need to start with our, our arms wrapped around the whole thing. It's actually starting with this one particular thing and working our way out that really gives us a deep understanding of it. Um, and so I think the, th- the, the context isn't with this doctrine, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but the context I think we need to understand before we kind of get into it is, is a different doctrine, and it's, it's kind of a, or a big picture idea. It's suffering. It's suffering. And I think if we understand that, then we can move into this text and understand the role and the mission of the Holy Spirit in our lives a little bit different. So just in terms of suffering, as I was thinking about it, um, we just, we don't start there Let me figure out how to really say it. Uh, it's easy last night because um, my wife tossed and turned all night. Have you ever had a night, if you're married, where you started thinking about the Brady Bunch beds? Like, I mean, seriously, like, if you're married, like, that really kind of makes sense, you know? Like, two beds, like, I could actually sleep. But, um, the, I mean, t- to talk about suffering, you have to, you, you can't talk about it as a label, um, you need to grab hold of health issues that really vex you or grief issues that you're dealing with or guilt issues that plague you or temptation issues that you just don't seem like you can, can kind of keep under control or finance issues that might not even be your own fault. You work hard your whole life and you bang away, bang away, bang away. Maybe you're a guy that's married with kids and you've done everything you could to be that guy, yet um, there you are. You know, it, to talk about suffering, you're talking about real issues, and, and suffering is the baseline, and, and we forget that. I, I remember hearing a, a sermon from this guy named John Piper, and, and it was a sermon, and the title was called uh, Motherhood is a Call to Suffer. Motherhood is a Call to Suffer. It's a great message. Um, motherhood is called suffering. What he was really getting at is motherhood is a choice or it's, it's, a, it's a reality where you become, where you willingly sacrifice your life for a dependent. You know, I mean, you, you, the sleepless nights, the energy, the heartache, all of it. I mean, just you exist for the other. You give your life up for the other. And, and, and to do that, puts you in a position of suffering where you're voluntarily enduring pain or, or 
discomfort or whatever. It's suffering. It's a call to suffer. Um, what I think we need to realize this morning is Christianity, by parity of reasoning, is a, is a call to suffer. Christianity is a call to suffer. I think this whole world is a broken world where there's, it's messy and we can't control circumstances and there's pain and there's disease and there's heartache. And so there's a baseline already of suffering. But when you become a Christian, you are dying to yourself and saying, I will no longer put myself first. I will put myself last. Man, that's the whole, I mean, you can sum up a lot of it just in that. Because of my faith, because, because I believe that Christ will actually put his, his hand on the scales, um, I will put myself at the back of the line. I'll go last. And it's, it's a dying to self. It's, it's a voluntary sacrifice. I exist for others. I live for others. I live to give. I, I, I'm going to seek and save the lost like Christ did. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die to self. And so Christianity is a call to suffer. Life is suffering. And so we exist in this context. And what is suffering? Suffering is a deficiency. It's a deficiency. It is a lack. It is a deficiency um, that creates a tension that we call suffering. This would be health. This is your illness. There's a deficiency that's going on. And the felt reality is because of this deficiency, because of this lack, you now suffer. Um, there's harmony in your relationships or in your job or in your family that, that would make things good and right and true. And it would ring. Harmony is, is this idea of a, it rings true. It sinks up well, and, and if, it's, if it's not there, it's, it's, it's disharmonious. There's a lack, there's a, a deficiency that creates what we know is, is relational tension, or suffering, or pain, or frustration, or difficulty, or want, and, and it's, it's a real quality. And so all of life, finances, we know what it would be to have enough, and, and we don't have enough, and and, you know, we can early on kind of do the whole thing where there's a will, there's a way, and I'm going to just charge through this, and, and I'm, a, I'm a survivor, and I'm a conqueror, and, and we kind of do those mind games. When I was in grad school, I remember that. I'd always sign up for like, I had a 40-hour-a-week job, and I'd always sign up for 16 hours, credit unit hours, and like the first week of classes, I would remember driving out of the parking lot, getting all the like, syllabi, all, all the different class assignments. And I'd turn up Christian radio really loud, and Jesus and I would rock together, you know, and I'd be praying and slamming the, the steering wheel of my fist, and it's like, and I'd just be yelling to myself, um, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, <laughs> except take 16 units and work full time, right? So, I mean, I, I didn't, I mean, it literally took me about five semesters to, I mean, I'm a slow learner, it took me about five semesters to finally get it that suffering is normal, like you can't just wipe it over. And, and I'd always be in the registrar's office a month in, um, dropping classes. So finances, I think we start that way, beating the steering wheel. I'm a conqueror, I can do this. I'll have three jobs, four jobs, ten jobs. I'm a man, you know. <laughs> four months later, you're a whipped man, you know. Um, 
man, and there's some real pain that goes on there. And, and so we know what it would be like to have the finances. This is a deficiency. It's a lack. It's a want. It's a need. It creates suffering. It creates suffering. So we've got to get that because we're so used to Christianity being something we slap onto our life where we think that the midline, this is suffering, this is like, you know, like having this killer life, and we think that this is the midline, that's where it should be. And then we try and add Christianity, Christianity onto that, and we don't, we don't start at the right starting point, we don't have the right context. And so um, Jesus is here with his disciples, and he's, he's led them into a dead end. I mean, it's a couple days before he's going to die. He's led him into this dead end, and, and now he's going to just take off. I mean, they got, they got a price on their head. They're afraid for their life. They're not sleeping good. They're getting ulcers. It's, it's painful. It's suffering. It's scary. They're paranoid. They're insecure, and, and they're beginning to hear from him that now he's going to leave. <laughs> really? Sweet game plan, Jesus. That was, that was, that, that, that was wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for leading us right to here. This is where I always dreamed of being. You know what I mean? Like that, that's, that's suffering. There's, a, there's a, a deficiency, a lack, a want, a need. They're, they're not on par with life, healthy and happy and peace and ease and comfort. There's a, there's a lack, there's a deficiency. Just like your lack, your deficiency now, if we don't understand Christianity right, what we immediately want is for Jesus to change the circumstances. Okay? Jesus, you've got me in a dead end. Now you have to change the circumstances. Our prayer life, we get on our knees, we cry out to the Lord, and it is, we, we ramp up our emotion, and God, you've got to do something now. Okay, I've been patient with you up till now, God, but my, my patience is running out. Circumstances have to change. That's, that's, that's where we go with our faith. It's at least what the cry is down here. I want you to see how Jesus comforted his disciples here. And so this is John chapter 14, and we'll just uh, pick it up in verse 15. So John chapter 14, verse 15. It says this. It says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And then here's what I'm going to do. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, and the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So their back is against the wall. And Jesus says, hey, listen, don't waver. Don't back out. You need to keep walking by faith. Walking by faith means you're going to obey the commands I've given you. You're going you're to hang in there. You're going to keep going. Okay, And that's what you're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the Father to give you another counselor, and he's going to give you another counselor, and it's the spirit of truth. You can't see him, but he will be with you, and he will be in you. He's, he's promising the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you jump down to verse 26, it says, But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is one of the rare instances the doctrine of the Holy Spirit pulls a lot of different things together, um, talking about the Spirit or, or different names for the Holy Spirit. But um, this is one of the few instances where we see the Holy Spirit kind of named that way. And so Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to come. Now, why does that matter? Uh, let's back up real quickly and turn to 1 John, if you will. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says this. Um, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now the word paraclete, if you've ever heard that, it's, it's, it's a real particular um, Yohanin, uh, John. It's, it, it, it's very particular to John, a, a title, a Greek title that he uses for the Holy Spirit, paraclete. And what it really means is um, it's somebody who's with you. And it takes on the sense, the, the word we have is counselor. Um, back in John 14, counselor. And it can go either way, but it leans a little bit more towards the kind of counselor that's there for you emotionally, the one that encourages you and holds you up and comforts you. So a little bit more like a counselor who comforts you, but it also means the one who advocates for you, kind of like a lawyer would, the, the counselor that's with you in the courtroom that's there for you, that speaks on behalf of you, that helps you. Um, and so John in First John is saying, just by way of passing, he says, look, don't sin. It's... Um, if you haven't realized it, if you read the Bible, this is, this is the Bible's view of sin. Um, don't do it. It's really stupid. I mean, I, sometimes we just make it much more complicated than it is. Look, don't, don't sin. It's, it's really stupid. It's just going to make your life that much worse. But if you do sin, um, Jesus Christ is, he comes into that with you, and he'll be there with you, and he'll help you try and undo the, the mistake that you do. He'll, he'll try and reverse the mess that you create. He'll always try and lead you back out into truth because sin is not opposed to morality. It's opposed to truth. Do you guys understand that? Um, we don't have time. Um, sinning is really saying yes to a, a truth claim. See, faith would say yes to, to this truth claim. The truth claim is... God saying to us, if you follow my commands, it will go well with you. Same as in the Old Testament when he gave the law. Look, if you follow me, it will go well with you. And that's a truth claim. And if we believe in that, that the word there is called faith. If we walk by faith, if we follow in that truth claim, we're trusting that God actually tells the truth, that he's faithful. It will go well with us. There's another truth claim. The truth claim, it's a lot like in the garden with, with a certain piece of fruit. Okay, it's, no, 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 no. God doesn't have it right. This is the truth. If you walk away from God and follow your own desires or do what feels natural or do what you want, okay, if you do that, you will have pleasure or, or things will sort themselves out. If you cheat, if you return the backstabbing for the person that's backstabbing you, if you do this, if you do that, that's how you'll really get out of your problems. That's how life will really work. This deficiency, that's how you'll get to where you need to be. That's a truth claim. Sin makes a truth claim. And so sinning is really saying, yes, I believe you. I believe what you're telling me, sin. 
So I'm going to do this thing. I'm not going to walk by faith. I'm going to walk into sin. And what happens is this deficiency in life gets even worse. And, and Christ comes into that, and he will lift us out of that pit and continue to try and move us back towards faith, which is walking by faith, saying yes to God, what he says is true. Okay, so the Bible just says don't sin. It's stupid. It's a lie. You're going to find it out one way or the other. You can either know that it's a lie or you can keep serving it, and life will teach you that it's a lie. Okay, um, we'll know it by experience. And so in, that, in the middle of that, though, John is saying you have this person, Jesus, that was sent, that was given to be there with you and to help you. Okay, why does that matter? Well, John uses the word paraclete there, and then he uses in John 14 the word paraclete, and, and Jesus is actually saying this. Listen again. He will give you another counselor. I will ask the Father, and, and he's going to give you another counselor. Who was the first counselor? It was Jesus. Jesus was God's inserting himself into the world in the person of Christ that he could be, the, the, in the Old Testament, Isaiah talked about Emmanuel, so he could be God with us, literally tabernacling amongst us, like um, having his tent in the middle of the community, being with his people. And Jesus was the counselor sent to be with his people in a messy world. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm leaving, and you're going to be in this messy world, but it's okay. Continue to walk by faith. Continue to believe in me. It's true. And, and not only that, but there's going to be a counselor. There's going to be somebody that will walk with you. I will ask God. He will send another counselor, another person. But this person, the world doesn't know because they can't see him. But you know him. You know that it's a person, not some weird ethereal force, because he's going to be with you and he's going to live in you. And he will aid you. He will comfort you. He will help you. Help with what? That's why we have to understand suffering. Because when you understand that we live with this deficiency, what do you think the counselor is coming to help us with? He's coming to help us with this, this lack, this need that we have. Because on our own, this would be way too much weight for us to carry. We would collapse underneath it. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. Why? Because you're weak, you're harassed, you're needy, you're living in this, this, this world of suffering. You come to me, and with me, now yoked with me, like under a yoke, like two oxen, I'll help carry you. I'll help carry you. I'll tell you the things you need to hear. I'll say the words that are affirmational, that are encouraging. I'll forgive you when you need forgiveness. I'll keep picking you up. And Jesus says, uh, don't worry, um, because I'll ask the Father, and he's going to send another counselor. We have a deficient view of the Holy Spirit for a couple reasons. Um, one, because we think, we, we have an understanding of the incarnation. Jesus came, he was God coming and being with us. We don't realize that really the Holy Spirit is, has very much the same ministry, very much the same role. It is God coming and being with us. Now Jesus made that possible by, by dying on a cross and removing sin so that we could benefit from this counselor, the spirit of truth. We, untrue, broken, messy, bent people, can now have this true, 
holy, pure, straight spirit of God because of what Jesus did. But the mission is the same. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to be a doctor for the sick. He came to be a good shepherd. And in John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm, I'm coming to help them have life. Now, this other counselor I'm sending is coming, this comforter, this one that's going to be with you. What do you think his mission is? Um, to seek and save the lost, to be with us, in it with us, to, to act as a good shepherd, to help us have life and to have life to the full, to help sustain us. And now we could jump off to all the other parts of, of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't exist so I can talk in tongues. And, and I, I don't mean that flippantly, and I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody, but tongues is a meaningful thing. It's a sign to believers, and it's a way that God can work. It's not something that, that glorifies me and makes me look cooler than other believers. Okay? The Holy Spirit comes to work in this deficiency, not only in my life, but to help me, with gifts from the Spirit, edify the church body. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Okay? He's going to use me to serve a role to help everything be the way it ought to be in the church. Okay? So gifts of things like tongue aren't like, ooh, 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 I reached in the grab bag and got the coolest thing. It's not for me. The Holy Spirit is here to help me get back to par, to have life. The Holy Spirit doesn't take somebody that's already at par and give them these cool little pieces of candy so that they're so much cooler than other people. And if you have artistic gifts, if you have financial gifts, if you have leadership gifts, if you have administration gifts, you living in a broken, suffering world with your own lack are going to get gifts from the Holy Spirit that help you help others. Edify the body of Christ. That these parts of the body, they have a role, but they don't exist for themselves. They exist to be used by me to do things, but they also have an interdependent role in this thing called a body. And we've so distorted the doctrines of the Holy Spirit, and we've made the Holy Spirit um, the way a junior high boy treats his mom. I mean, a junior high boy, <laughs> food, now. Then leave, because my friends are here. I don't want you around. After the food, though, because we need food. Um, you, you understand what I'm saying there? There's a, there's, a, there's a deficiency and a lack, and this Holy Spirit, this comforter is coming, and we are weak, and this Holy Spirit is strong. It is the Spirit of Truth. Capital T. And, and it... It exists and it, it brings healing and it brings life. And out of that comes fruit. What kind of fruit? A great 401k? A great golf score? Um, I, you know what I always, you want to know what I always prayed for? Like I wanted like, um, you know what's interesting too? This is something, side note. We always pray for more of what we already have a little bit of. Do you guys ever notice, notice that? Like I, have, I have a little bit of a good memory. I always wanted like that photographic memory where it'd be like, Oh, that was page 232 and, and such and such book that was published in 1853. And you know what I'm talking about? Like uh, Goodwill Hunting, right? I always wanted that. So that's what I want from the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit I want. Hey, 
God, I could really help you out if I had a better memory. And I know some of you pray for a better golf score. You know, I could witness on the golf course so much better if I had more credibility. Um, I would go into the PGA, I'd make money, I would, I would do this. I know that those of you who are good with money pray that prayer. God, I, you know I'm good with money. You know I do the stock market well and all that. Help out my stocks. Help me make more money. I'll use that to, to bless people. Now, not saying that God won't give you those things, but the fruit that this spirit of truth bears in our life, does anyone have it memorized? Shout it out. It's not a rhetorical question. Someone tell me. Love, joy, peace, patience. Fill it in. Kindness. I was going to say goodness and I knew I was wrong. So mercy and self-control and all that. The, the right kind of soul, the right kind of maturity, the, the right kinds of, of reality that shapes me to be whole and complete despite the circumstances. To, to be something usable by God in this world, to be a light. You know what? My golf score or my 401k is not the kind of light that God wants to shine to unbelievers. That's not my witness. My witness is, is that I become Christ-like in the middle of this garbage that, that I could consider, like James says, I could consider my trials pure joy. Because God, because, Christ, because there's somebody putting their hand on the scales and redistributing everything, um, working out good where I, I only see bad. All things work for good according to those who are called, according to his purposes. The gifts of the Spirit aren't there to serve me. That's why I get so angry about these petty games that Christians play about gifts of the Spirit. It's like my, my, it's like my kids when they get gifts or birthday gifts or Christmas gifts, it's all about what gift did you get? Who's cooler and who's better? And, and, and it's no. It's not it. And so the Holy Spirit is here as a, as a comforter and aid. And in that, takes care of us and heals us and gifts us that we might edify this body, this, this, this church, this thing called church. So where am I going with all that? <sighs> There are some doctrines that are for believers in their maturity. And I don't know that we have a category for that. We, we lump all doctrine together. It's just doctrine. It's just what it is. You know, you're a brand new Christian, day one, let me just dump it on you. Here it is. Doctrine. There's, there's some things that are for people in their infancy. And I think there are some doctrines that really begin to shine later in your Christian walk. Paul talks about this whole process that, that there's a growth, there, there's growth to your faith. In Hebrews, he talks about people starting almost as infants and then growing up into their faith and being more mature. Okay? And the Holy Spirit is a doctrine, I believe, that really the more mature we get, the, the older in our faith we get, we really have to understand correctly. Jesus says in, in the book of Revelation, he comes in and it's a letter to a church. And this church, it's very common struggle that I think we all kind of know 
by acquaintance, but he comes into this church and says, look, you guys think you're rich? You, you think you're healthy? You think you're, you're here? But you should let me into your meeting. Like, you should let me come in because the truth is, is that you're naked, you're blind, you're poor, you're, you're, it's messy, and you don't even realize it. You're blind to it spiritually. There's, there's crazy stuff going on. And, and you're, like, going on with your religion, and you, you should actually invite me in because you need me to help lift you out of that. You need me to teach you. You need me to comfort you. You need me to clean you up. And so you're doing religion without any respect to me because you think you have it all figured out. And boy, do you need me. Um, there's a lot of similarity to that in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We get into our Christian life and we begin praying to God for, for change in our circumstances. And, and we think something's broke because all this excitement we had when we were first a Christian turns into a lot of, lot of toil later on. I mean, you look at the disciples that Christ called. I mean, there's a lot of elation up front. Man, we found a rabbi. We left everything. We're going to follow him. It's, it's home team. It's us. It's cool. It's fun. And then, wow, it's in, it's in easy all but one of them probably martyred, giving their lives, choosing to enter into that suffering of Christ. So in our, our growth as Christians, we, if we really begin to understand it and, and we need to be reminded of what our calling was, that we're last, that Christianity is a call to suffer, that we need that spirit of truth there speaking to us and in the midst of that, helping to, to make up this lack or this deficiency that we've got. Does, does that make sense? To teach us how to deal in faith with the very real problems that we have. Your relational ones, your health ones, your financial. To tell us what does it look like to actually walk forward in faith in this. What does it look like what, to, to receive some kind of encouragement spiritually so that you still have some kind of a witness in the midst of that. That you still shine somehow. That, that other people look to you and there's still some joy left. That your tank isn't completely empty. It's a doctrine that as we move on, if we're going to avoid becoming religious, we have to develop this understanding and this need and this dependency on the Holy Spirit. Let me back up just a little bit more. Um, actually, I, I think I meant to share it earlier and I forgot what I meant to share earlier. But it's, here's a quote, very well-known quote from Marx. But I want you to read it because we're going to jump off from this. But Here's Marx's quote. Y'all know the bottom of it, but here's what he says. Religious suffering is at the same time an expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the sentiment of a heartless world, and the soul of the soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Okay? What Marx was saying, and he had an ideology here, and it was all about um, trying to build a better world through social structures, but, but devoid of God, that there is suffering and there is this, this mess. It's, it's the, he gets the baseline. But what he says is, is in the middle of this suffering, what religious people do is they take this thing called religion, and that's the opium. It's the thing that, that powers their illusions. It's the thing that, that allows for them, he, what did he call it? He called um, false consciousness. He had this phrase called false consciousness. False consciousness for Marx was, 
was our ability to believe a lie, our ability to be deluded, our ability to, to bring in falseness and feel like it's real. Okay? And so he's saying the same thing here with the opium deal. And he's saying, look, this is our coping mechanism for lifting ourselves out of suffering and, and, and minimizing the, the, the reality of that. So at one time, it's, it's part of suffering. And on, on the other hand, he's saying it's a, a kind of protest against suffering, like pretending it doesn't really exist. Okay. I think there's something going on there that we can benefit from because I think Marx is right on some counts. And, and where I think we need to go with this is say that religion is something. It's, it is something that we take in. It's something that we hold or we have. It's a system. It can be a system. And so we bring this system in, and then there's a mechanism that has to drive this system. How does religion work? How does religion get us out of suffering? How does religion, I'm talking on pure human terms, how does it somehow um, spin this, this sense of, of feeling better about ourselves and feeling like we're, we're dealing with the suffering or we're, we're able to kind of coordinate off or remove it from ourselves? And I think there's a very human way that religion works that, that really doesn't take God into account. And then I think there's a way that, that true, and again, spirit of truth works, that's not what Marx is talking about at all. And we got to get there. So the immature dealing with religion is this. What makes it work? What drives it? What is the thing that somebody does on a regular basis that makes them feel religious and that religious feeling has some kind of a psychological or spiritual effect in their life? In the Old Testament, it was the law. We see that with the Pharisees even in Jesus' day. That by following rituals, by following rules, they begin to feel a certain way about their life that brings solace and comfort. Yeah, things might be crazy, but look how ordered and clean my life is. Look how good I can feel about these regular steps I'm making, religious things, and I must be a wonderful kind of person. God must really love me because of this order. So I've got chaos over here, but in pursuing this law and, and these kind of religious things, I somehow feel that despite all these circumstances, I am somebody. And it, that has a, a, a profound effect in the psychological makeup of that person. After Jesus, what are some ways that we did this? Um, for 1,500 years and, and, and even beyond then, when the Catholic Church was the predominant religion or, or Christian belief system, mass became the driving mechanism for making religion work. Mass and, and to some degree confession. It was this regular, routine, religious, ritual act by which... I literally, the person in that system, literally felt like they were taking in grace. The, the means of grace and the, the Catholic system there is you're, you're actually taking in Christ's body in mass, the, the, the blood and the, and the body of Christ. You're actually taking it in. And that has a sustenance value. It, it, it quickens your soul and it gives you spiritual life. And the 
the act of going to confessional and doing your, your penance is a way of restoring grace or putting grace back into you so that your, your grace quotient is higher and it's sufficient. And in this system, I'm, de- I'm deriving a mechanism that works. I psychologically, spiritually, in some sense psychosomatically, physically feel like this deficiency, this suffering, that, that I've got something working against that. Does that make sense? Um, the Protestant church, what do we do? Um, the Bible became the thing we worshipped and it became our, our means of grace. Now, all of these things, if you, the law, you know, um, communion in some sense, um, forgiveness and repentance, all these things are good but if we think that they're going to be the mechanism, that's where we go wrong. So the Bible, we, we fell victim in the, in the um, Protestant church to what I call bibliolatry, um, making an idol out of the Bible. Okay, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, not to the Bible. The Bible is authoritative. I believe it is the rule. It is the standard. It's what informs us as to what is true. and We can't argue with it. And it points us to Christ. The Old Testament pointed forward to Christ. The New Testament talks to Christ. But the one that we worship and the one that has authority is not the Bible, but Christ. It's a different kind of authority. Do you get what I'm saying there? Do you understand? But if we treat the Bible as if we're going to derive our religious mechanism from the Bible, my routine act, and if somebody doesn't do what I do, that's why I start to judge them because it makes me feel like I'm doing it so much better. This is what, I'm, what everyone's supposed to be doing, and it's what makes it all work. And if you're not doing it, wow, you're really not making it work, and, and I must be really making it work. And the, the Protestant church went somewhere where the Bible began to be the mechanism, very legalistically, that drove that sense of religion. In the last 100 years, or certainly the last 50 years, with where fundamentalism went, it started as doctrine, Okay, hear me now. Fundamentalism started late 1800s, early 1900s, Christian fundamentalism, as doctrine. These are the fundamental doctrines as opposed to new liberal doctrines. Where fundamentalism went in, in the last 50 years was morality. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our experience of fundamentalism in the last 50 years was all about morality. And, and having the right views in terms of morality and having the right kind of whitewash perfection feeling, um, there's nothing wrong in your, in your life, kind of prettiness with the right makeup on. And morality began to be, in the last 50 years, and it, it really messed things up, the driving mechanism, just like the law in the Old Testament, for what made religion work for us. I have the right religious views and I've, I've prettied myself up right so I can judge the people that look a little dirty or that don't have the right religious views and I must be so much better and I love that I feel so much better than them. So much so that I forget that I'm supposed to be witnessing to them and I like that they are there because I derive pleasure from it. The distinction. Do you understand what I'm saying? I no longer get excited about their need and that I might be able to be a light to meet their need. I get excited about how good I am in comparison to them. Looks a lot like the Pharisees, doesn't it? Made religion work. And it's an opium that says, 
I get to feel psychologically good, which counterbalances this lack or deficiency that I have. Is anybody, I mean, am I, I mean, are you tracking kind of with me? Okay. What is supposed to be the mechanism? We're going to get there actually in like two weeks. Matt Smith, our, our missions pastor, is actually flying back from Haiti. You can pray for him. He got sick at the end of his trip. Um, not fun trying to travel while you're sick, but he's going to be with us next week sharing um, some of that trip and, and some of the things that God's been putting on his heart. But in two weeks, we're going to start a series on John 15, the vine and the branches. And we get to the heart of what is supposed to drive it in that passage. Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's, there's no life. There's nothing coming into you to renew you or restore you. There's no life. But if you are plugged into me, if you abide in me, if you're with me, then there's life. Like I actually begin to nourish you such that you grow and just like you can't help it but bear fruit. It just, it just comes out. It's, it's what happens naturally is, as this drive mechanism is going on and you are in some sense dependent on me and you can't stop it any more than a branch could stop fruit from coming out of it the, the way it's designed. I'm the drive mechanism and, and apart from me you can't do anything. And so Jesus says in this passage, look, I've, I've led you into a dead end. doesn't matter. You keep obeying me. You keep staying with me and, and in me. And I'm going to send you this comforter, this counselor, who's going to remind you and he's going to teach you about the things I was telling you. And he's going to help you walk and remain with me. So much so that the this, this spirit is actually going to be life to you. That the fruit is going to naturally come through this relationship that you have with that spirit. You, all you have to do, the only work you have to do is remain. This is, this is the work. This is, this is Christian work. And you know what? It's hard work. Because to remain means faith. Because it cuts off all other options. And you're saying, I'm going to bank on God that he's really telling the truth. I'm going to remain here. I'm going to abide here in faith. This is the Christian work. And then the rest is driven by our relationship, our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. It's a mature doctrine. It's a doctrine that, that, that you look at all other religious mechanisms and you say, that's not what I'm after. I'm not after pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm not after illusions or delusions. I'm not after opium. In the midst of my suffering, I want to stand and I want to be made new through the power of the Holy Spirit. I had a friend, I was only a Christian for a couple of years. I had a friend named Wendy. She went to a Bible college and, and it, was, it was after we were leaving. I worked for three summers as a Christian camp counselor um, when I first got saved. And it was after the second year and I remember driving back down to California after the summer and I was going to be hopping on a plane. And we were... We were um, I had like a day or two to kill or whatever, and a bunch of us were down there, and we were at In-N-Out. And she looked at me, and she's like, I don't, I don't understand the Holy Spirit. I don't understand the Holy Spirit. I don't get it. I'm at a, I'm at a Bible college. I've grown up in, my, in church my whole life. I'm just so lost, Ken. And I think it's because 
we don't see any role for the Holy Spirit other than being a mom to a junior high boy. And so we take our relationship with Christ. We feel like we're on the home team, a lot like the disciples did when they first got started. And then we go on to say, now what am I going to do with this thing called religion? How am I going to work it? What's the mechanism that's going to drive it? How am I going to succeed at this the way I try to succeed at everything else? I remember in grad school being in prayer and having this very distinct reality hit, hit me. I was in prayer and all of a sudden I had this picture of like playing a video game. And all of a sudden at the door, Christ stood there and he stared at me. And in that moment, I realized that there's a way in which we can take the secular, worldly video game out, the one where we're trying to succeed and win. And we can take the Christian video game and slap it in the Xbox and then just go right on playing the same way, just in a different format. But the end result is all the same. See what what we're driving at is the same. And I remember just having this sense that Jesus was just at the door going, are you, are you going to put down the controller and follow me? And it, it was the awkwardest feeling. And I think that happens in our life. And the mature doctrine of Christianity is, is that when we put in the Christian game, we kill the game set. And we walk away from self. And we're willing to remain and abide with Christ. Walk by faith. Go where he's going. It's not passive. It's active and in doing that, we got to have something that's going to make it all work. Otherwise, we're left like orphans, needy and dependent, yet with nobody to take care of us, with a deficiency not only in life status, but in resources. And Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're not going to be helpless. I'm going to put an engine in there. I'm going to put a person in there. I'm going to put somebody strong in there. I'm going to put the spirit of truth, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in there that's going to help catalyze and make this all go for you. You're not going to be like an orphan left without resources. I will take care of you. God will take care of you. The spirit of truth will be here for you so that this deficiency, this lack, this call to suffer Christianity is a call to suffer. That you will be in a system that will take and support and lift you and nurture you and give you life. You'll be plugged into a life source. All else is vanity. It's a doctrine. I think the Holy Spirit is a doctrine for the mature. And without it, we're left with religion. And I mean that with lowercase r, religion. Um, G.K. Chesterton said it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that it's been found difficult and left untried. It's not that it's been tried and found wanting. It's that it's been found difficult and left untried. Christianity is a call to suffer. Do we really believe that, that God is telling the truth when he says enter into it anyways? Secondly, as we try to exist there, do we really believe that in the midst of this difficulty and this suffering and this lack and this deficiency and this pain, that there's something sufficient enough to support us that we could be a light, that we could actually have joy and patience in the midst of suffering? Paul says about the thorn in his flesh and and, and whatnot, he says, um, when I am weak, I am strong. There's such a maturity to Paul's theology and it's so weird when you talk to people who don't understand Christianity and they talk about Paul, they don't get any of the nuances. 
But there's a maturity in Paul's theology. And Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because I don't try to do religion in those moments. I lean hard on God. My prayer life comes not about just continuously asking God to change the circumstances. I give up on that after a while. And I just lean hard on God and say, well, if you're not going to change the circumstances, in the midst of this, lift me up and support me. I know you can give me the life and the energy and the joy. You can fill me despite pain, God. So in the midst of this, support. So when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because I lean hard on God. There's one verse I want to give you in 2 Corinthians, one more verse. and This is Paul talking about the difference between religion in some sense and the spirit. He says this, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Confidence like, ah. Abiding with him and knowing that God is telling the truth, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's all right there. My sufficiency, my competency, my ability to edify, my ability to be a witness is coming from God. He's giving me this. He's, he's gifting me and he's enabling me to go out and minister, to be used, to, to, to have a purpose and a calling. And he's doing that. Otherwise, I'd just be with nothing. And, and what I'm doing in that is not calling people to religion, not calling them to the law, to the letter, which is something that's tyrannical that they can never meet up to. But I'm calling them to something called the Spirit, this ministry of the Spirit, this grace, this life, because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's the very energy of God. It's the means of grace. It's the mechanism that drives this thing in us. It's truth. It's for the mature. And it's not junior high religion. It's this full-blooded, mature, Jesus disciple, willing to give my life for the gospel, for the kingdom, religion, empowered by something that will see it all the way through. Jesus says, I will send you this counselor who will be with you till the end. Father, um, give us mature faith in this community, in other communities, in your church. Let's not let the church do to people like zoo, the zoo would do to animals and just corral us, keep us safe control it, try to keep it tame. Uh, Give us life, give us passion, give us energy, give us faith that we would run, that we would run wild, but that we would run confidently knowing that that you really are going to drive this, that we can trust you, that what you say is true. Confirm in us again if if people are here that, like my friend, just don't get the Holy Spirit. Father God, I just pray that you would confirm in them the Holy Spirit that their prayer life would be able to be about relationship and relational needs and emotional needs. God, sustain me. God, make me strong. God, make me aware of your presence and not just be about circumstantial needs. Give us mature prayer. Give us mature faith in Christ's name.